My name is Justin Gage, and you're tuned in to the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions Podcast with your host, Jason Hilder. Hey, welcome back to Transmissions. I am your host, the head cold adult, Jason Woodbury. I apologize for the way my voice sounds today, but uh, the following conversation will more than make up for my Kermit DeFrog-styled introduction. Today on the show, two British invasion legends, Colin Blundstone and Rod Argent of the Zombies. The band formed in the early 60s in St. Albans and remarkably, they are still out on the road and making new music. The band's new album is called Different Game, and it's out March 31st on Cooking Vinyl Records. Here's a little bit of the country-tinged love while you can from the new album. The album is being released in advance of a new feature-length documentary as well, called Hung Up on a Dream. Directed by musician and filmmaker Robert Schwartzman in collaboration with Tom Hanks' Playtone Media Company, it's slated for release later in 2023. I've had the pleasure of seeing the zombies a handful of times. Unlike so many of their peers, they're still truly active. How do you sustain that kind of thing? That was chief on my mind in this chat, which also touches on their classic single, Tell Her No, the landmark LP Odyssey and Oracle, their relationship to superfan Tom Petty, and of course, I had to ask them about the fake zombies that toured in the wake of the band's late 60s breakup. As affable as could be, I truly enjoyed talking with Colin and Rod, and I hope you enjoy this chat too. Before we get into it, Aquarium Drunkard is powered by its patrons. Do you dig Transmissions and Aquarium Drunkard's daily music coverage and all the stuff we create for you to listen to? If the answer is yes and you want to help us keep making it, head to our Patreon page today and pledge your support to keep the servers humming and ensure that Aquarium Drunkard is able to share music we dig with you for many more years to come. All right, let's do it. The Zombies, here on Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. awesome to speak with you both thanks for taking the time to do it pleasure it's our pleasure where where are you all at right now we're in new york and we're doing um three days of promo before um before going to nashville and then south by southwest uh where we've got the premiere of the documentary and the new album yeah well i imagine you're looking forward to that journey out to to texas very much absolutely yeah, yeah. 
South by Southwest has got an atmosphere all of its own. It's uh, it's quite magical, really. There's huge energy there because there are so many young bands who have come there to, you know, to introduce themselves to the industry, and we've played there actually twice, twice before. before yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's it's very very full on, but it's but it's great fun. That's that's fantastic. Yeah, you know, in all these years, I've never actually made it out to South by Southwest. I'm in Arizona, and so it's not, you know, not the not the farthest. It's let's say it's a shorter journey for me than it might be for for you all. But um, yeah, definitely, yeah. <laughs> but no, I've never, I've never, I've never made it out. So um, I'm I'm glad that you guys will be out there soon. This will air after that, but um, I'm sure that you're gonna have a uh, a good time out there. Congrats on the new record. I've got my copy. This just came in the other day. Right. Fan- fantastic. I was really glad that I got the the record before we spoke because I was able to sit down and listen to it. My favorite way to actually, you know, experience a record is to sit down, put it on the turntable, give it my full attention. And I was able to do that with the record. It's You're fantastic. So right. it, it's so different, isn't it? And and, and I, I'm the same. You know, like everyone else, I stream everything because it's so easy. But if you go to the trouble of, of putting an album on, you sit there for 20 minutes each side um, and, and, you, and you take it in and you hear things in the right progression, the right order. You don't think, oh, I've just got to do an, an email while I'm doing it. You know, it's a great way to do it. Yeah, I much prefer that. It's a lot more, um, you know, it's a it's a more it's a more devotional way to listen to stuff, and I think it rewards the 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 music. You you all worked on this one. Would you go as far as to say this was the most time you'd ever kind of had to to work on a record? Because a lot of it was written sort of over the pandemic, but then cut together, right? Well, that was great. Uh, the, the fact, in a sense, you know, it. It was two things, the the pandemic. First of all, it was a huge frustration because we wanted to record the album in an old-fashioned way where we were all in the room at the same time and so people could bounce off each other, that we could interact with Colin if he was doing a guide lead vocal and Colin could interact with us because he could hear what we were doing. Um, and, and, and you get that performance that you hope to capture something which is a bit of magic you know, in the old sense, rather than building things up analytically, you know, track by track. So that bit um, became very frustrating because we put two tracks down, a merry-go-round and runaway, and we were gung-ho to really keep the this way of recording, you know, which we, because we've sort of gone back in time in a way, but using all modern technology. Um, and, uh, uh, and then it became a huge frustration. But the upside of it was that it's my studio we're recording in. So I'm at home there all the time and forced to be at home. So I have the time to start writing a song. And then if it goes slightly wrong or I'm, I'm, you know, I lose my way a little bit, I leave it for a couple of days, but things are still set up in the studio and I can wander back in and, uh, and carry on with a fresh mind. And that was an unlooked for huge bonus for me. And, and that was the first time I can think of in many years that I've had a, a, a 12 month period of time or more when I could, I could write and, and in, in sort of peace in a way, you know, because I could just devote things to that. And that, that, that was a huge luxury. And, and I never imagined that before we start. I just thought it was a huge frustration. Sure. Sure. Uh, so then post pandemic or when things had finally passed enough for you all to get together, 
it was important for you guys to cut this one together live in a room uh, absolutely we decided right from the beginning that we were going to go back to that if you like old-fashioned way of recording there's a different energy in the studio when we're all there Definitely. performing together yeah. and it certainly helps me uh we've sing differently yeah actually. i think i do actually yeah. it helps me with the vocal and very often although it's only perhaps a rough vocal we often keep that vocal you know and, and the guys in the band say that it helps them as well to have me singing live oh, yeah. with them and also they're working off of one another as well so although it made everything a lot more drawn out we were determined to record in that way i have had the pleasure of seeing the zombies now i think three times live in uh here in phoenix and that is a lot more than I've seen other bands of your guys's era. You've been a hard touring band for a long time, and tell me about it. Yes. <laughs> and yes, having have. having seen those live gigs, I I know, I think I get a sense of what you're talking about in terms of the energy of being, you know, really playing off of each other, really um, locking into what somebody else is doing. Yeah. It's a reciprocal thing. And I think that comes across on the record. You can hear that there is that um, that interplay that I've had the the pleasure of seeing live. Um, it's cool that you were able to get that onto, you know, a studio recording. And the extraordinary thing is that the actual time of recording was was so much less. The time of us all being in the studio was really, even though it, this was done necessarily over a long period because of all the restrictions of covid the mm -hmm. actual time spent recording was far less i mean yeah. we would we would add afterwards we would allow ourselves to add afterwards things like harmonies um and and you know and and we didn't turn our back on anything but we didn't use click tracks um a, apart from a couple of times when we had to for technical reasons um mm -hmm. so it was as close uh, to being on stage and and just going through trying to capture a, a special performance um, with us all playing together that we could get. Um, I would say that usually a track would take maybe, uh, if you forget, you know, the harmonies added afterwards and the little tweaks and things, it, uh, a track would take maybe four hours to record. And, and yeah. then you'd have, you'd have the track on the album. Um, I mean, that's ridiculous, really, but it can only happen because I've got my own studio, which was designed by uh, acoustically it's only little it's a small studio but it's it was designed acoustically by the guy who designed abbey road um so uh, um my brother-in-law is paul mccartney's recording engineer and when he came after it had been finished he came over to us and um he walked into the studio he said how's the studio going i said oh it's great they're finished now you know and and he walked in and said sounds great i said well, you haven't heard anything and he said i don't have to hear anything <laughs> you uh -huh. know just by walking he could tell immediately because he's so practiced you know um so um we found that for instance when we did drop reeling and stupid it, it happened to be um a very early take that, that that we took but we did about eight takes and and then you listen to them all back and analyze them and and everything and then you go and have something to eat and then you come back again with a after a couple of hours and listen to it you know um and we chose a really early one uh and i think we pretty much used in a pretty untouched way colin's guide vocal that was yeah. only there to guide us and it and the particular tape we chose with a few little 
refreshes afterwards. It's just minute things that we did. Um, it did capture that indefinable magic. That and, and recording always used to be in the old days necessarily about capturing something in the studio, which was there then for forever. You know, once it's down there, it's there forever, but it's captured a moment in time. And, yeah. and, and, and there's something magical about that. And that's what made it made it such a, a pleasure to record most of the time. It really was. You that brings me to a point that I, that I, I wanted to bring up. Which is that, you know, the record's called Different Game. And uh, I think the first Zombies album came out in 1965. Um, I don't know if that... Does that seem correct? In in America, I think it was, yes. Okay, so just a little earlier in the UK then. Um, The first single was July 1964, and they wanted an album pretty soon after that so i think in the uk it was in the the fall of 64 but it everything was three or four minutes three or four months later in the states so i think yeah. 65 would be right well obviously the music industry has changed so much over that time for people like yourselves who were there on the ground floor, I'm, I'm very interested in the perspective you have of just how much things have changed. I mean, for example, you can have a Abbey Road uh, style studio in your own place now, which probably would not have been the case in 1964, 1965. But how else have things changed for you guys? Well, it's changed totally. I mean, the way of recording has changed, of course. You've got limitless tracks that you can record on now. When we first started recording, you had four tracks, and you were pretty much recording live. So, you know, studio recording has changed out of all recognition, but the industry has changed out of all recognition as well. When we Mm. started, singles were all important, and the albums was a bit of an afterthought. And then there was the revolution where... In the early 70s, it was an albums market. Everybody was concentrating on albums. But but now, of course, we've gone through so many changes. We've ended up with streaming. Very few people buy records now. It, the, and, and the thing is, with all these changes, it's changing all the time. It's almost week by week that it's changing. So it's very hard to, to keep on top of it all, really. But the basis of what we do hasn't changed because we try, it's very, very simple what we try and do. We try and write the best songs that we can, and we try to record them to the best of our ability. We're not following any trends, and we're not trying to be overtly commercial. We've never known how to do that, really. No, I, I don't think we'd be very good at any of that sort <laughs> no. of thing. So in, in many ways, it's it's the same for us. All these changes have gone on in the periphery of the industry around us, but right. for us, the essence of what we do has remained the same. Yeah. I mean, the thing is that we only know how to write and record one way, really, and that is to get excited personally in a small personal space. Like if I'm writing a song, I've I've got this personal space. I, I have to make it work for me. I have to mm-hmm. get excited about voicings and chord changes and things. And, and you know, what, what a lovely way to earn your living, you know, so you do that. Um, and then and then if i get something that i like i'll give colin a ring he lives up the road basically well he's an hour away but i mean it's it's easy for him to 
come down and he always warms up so he spends all this time in the car coming down warming his voice up which is great and he comes in and then i explain the song to i sing through the song through to carl and explain it and i know by now <laughs> um i know what a sort of golden part of his voice is if he's hitting a note i think you know he'll sound great singing this up here and and so i'll i'll um i'll put it in that this key or or that key or whatever um so that, that that's an advantage you know knowing his voice so well um and if he likes it and if he gets excited about what we've got we'll take it to the band and and then sometimes that's where it'll change because sure. what i imagine initially when we start playing I, I say oh could you play this sort of groove and you know could you play this sort of bass and we you know and the guitar and everything and then we play it and i think no it actually doesn't sound really like i mean that doesn't really work as i thought thought it would and then they put in their suggestions and and and, and we, we work together on that in a little workshop and if they get excited about it then uh we've, we've got a track in the offing you know um right and that's the only way i know how to do it and when all through our career i have to tell you right even with she's not there at the beginning the record company didn't think it was commercial and and with time the season the record company did not think it was commercial we've had this throughout our whole career um and often major record labels if they signed us for some reason or other will put us on one of their smaller subsidiaries um and and the funny thing is that you know the, the record company with she's not there didn't really think it was commercial but it was a number one record you know? right <laughs> and the same with time this season it took them they weren't even first of all they weren't going to release odyssey and oracle and then they wouldn't take al cooper who was the the brilliant produce um producer and a and r man um they wouldn't take his suggestion of of time of the season as the single and 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 they put out two other singles and then weren't going to put out a third single and al cooper because he just joined uh, uh columbia he um they said, well, OK, if you want to put that out, this can be your last gasp. But, you know, we've got to leave it after that. And of course, it went to number one. It was number one in Cashbox, number two or three. I can't remember in Billboard um, exactly 50 years to the day before uh, Rock and Roll uh, Hall of Fame induction. The Cashbox came out on the day um, 50 years before we got our award. You know, But wow, never, they've never thought we were commercial. and and. It, but in the long run it's worked for us because we've done it we've always done it truly and 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 to please ourselves um so we've done it for real in a way that's the way i think about it um and in the long term it means that unbelievably young people now um are just as turned on by uh, some of those seminal songs for us as as they were back in the 60s i mean yeah. we saw an algorithm um of streaming which showed that our main streaming audience and there's a pretty high number of streams are between the ages of 22 and 34. i found that absolutely unbelievable um and we i don't care you know how old the audience is but that is it's very gratifying you know to think that we could that what we did then can still talk to a present generation yeah no kidding no kidding when you all got started it's interesting thinking about the different ways that the music industry has changed and the different way that um, the way music is disseminated has evolved, right? When you got started, it was very much a singles game, and it was about making singles. 
Yeah. It's it's kind of like that again now in a certain way, where l- folks are maybe less likely to sit down with an entire record and digest it as a singular piece of work, much more likely to select, hey, this this track, this one, this one, you know, sort of in a singles fashion. But right at that golden age, when you're making, let's say, Odyssey and Oracle, there's a sea change happening, and it's becoming an album the album has become uh, sort of the the primary way that people would engage with a piece of work, and people started fashioning, you know, music to be experienced that way. So, I think just how strange and interesting it is that like young people are are latching on, but but almost experiencing it in a similar way that young people in 1964 would have experienced it. Yeah, I absolutely love that. I mean. The the great thing about it is that because it's only 20 minutes aside and you can't run around doing loads of other things, you've sort of, you know, you've only got 20 minutes. So you, as, as you were saying earlier, you sit down and listen to it and you hear things, you hear the tracks in the progression that they were meant to be heard. And that's yeah. very important. We, we took a long time sequencing the, um, the tracks on this album. And for instance, and I think it makes a track sound much more effective um if it comes out of um the track we want it to come out of for instance mm-hmm. on the album i just give you one example i think that um when we do merry-go-round which is a bit of a stormer um and then immediately go into something that we hope is very beautiful and with a lovely intimate guitar thing um it sounds so effective after yeah. merry-go-round you get the last crash on merry-go-round and then suddenly you get this beautifully played um uh intimate sort of almost like a spanish but it's on electric guitar uh, thing and it makes it sound so much more beautiful than if you just hit it from anywhere you know yeah. and played it, it and, and and i always used to find that when i played an album and listened to it all the way through i'd have my favorite tracks like people always do but often the track that i like least within a week or so would become one of my favorite tracks because it wasn't such a quick burner, you know? Sure, sure. I wanted to ask about this album cover. Um, this photo was taken, I believe, in Arizona, where I'm at. Uh, yep. You were on the way from maybe San Diego to Tucson or the other way around? What what, what exactly went down? We were going to Tucson, and first of all, the air conditioning gave up. But oh. then... Uh, the, the engine actually started to catch fire. So we obviously had to stop and we were in the middle of the desert and it, it could have been quite dangerous. But I mean, it's it's part of the adventure of being on the road. People don't see this this side of things. Um, they, they just see us for an hour and a half on stage. We, but we have a wonderful road crew and they just um, immediately launched into an, an emergency procedure, I suppose, because we needed three vehicles to get us out of there. Um, and you can see the, the breakdown truck on, on the front of the album. That, that took the bus we were traveling in. We had um, another truck <clears throat> traveling with us that helped unload some of the stuff we were carrying and then we needed to get sort of a big 10 10 person 14 person people carrier 
all out into the middle of the desert. So all of these vehicles had to come two or three hours. To and it had to be arranged, Cole, as well. Of course, they had to start from scratch. Just yeah. to get hold of someone was difficult. But then they had to travel two or three hours out to the middle of the desert to pick us up. And when we, we had to get out of the truck, obviously, because it was in danger of catching fire, um, it was 107 degrees when we got out of the truck. So it was... It was. Um, it, it could have been a very challenging situation. And I, just as an aside, I noticed that there were these holes in the side of the, <laughs> the road where the desert started, which I thought were some kind of drainage holes. And it was explained to me that they were snake holes. Yeah. Which, which, and this was evening coming, <laughs> on. <laughs> coming on. So I wasn't looking forward to it getting dark while we were there. So <laughs> it, it, it was. Um, it, it was quite a dangerous situation. But anyway, there was a happy ending. So it was. We weren't. Luckily, we weren't playing that night. We managed to get to Tucson, and um, we played the next night. I was going to ask if that was the first time that the zombies had ever been stranded in the desert. Yeah. probably in the desert, in the desert yeah. I, I remember a lot of times being stranded in the 60s we always seemed to travel and in, in, particularly in the UK we traveled in the most disastrous terrible trucks even when we got back together again in 1999 the first 10 years of traveling you could not believe the transport we had we had a road manager who was a great character and liked to use his truck and it would just it would just blow up, you know, yeah. with alarming <laughs> regularity. And his idea of servicing the truck was calling out the emergency services right. and they would get the truck going and he would count that as he'd service the truck. And then we went on to our next emergency a week later. I have to take the credit because of changing that. Yeah. Because I was on tour with Colin because, first of all, Colin was um, – uh, you know, using this guy for his solo band and everything. And when he finally got me involved, I did a couple of tours like this. And I remember particularly the first tour and the first couple of tours in America. And at one point in the tour, we were staying in this terrible down market hotel um, with a. Which had been booked by our tour manager. Booked by our tour manager. <laughs> with a, I'm sensing uh, a theme here with this guy. <laughs> yeah, you, 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 you've got a good sense. Yeah. And, and there was a huge flyover within about um, 10 yards of my bedroom and i came down in the morning and i said okay um i said paul unless you uh, oh dear i've given his name away now um, unless <laughs> that's only his stage name <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah i said if you um and and unless you change all the hotels today for the rest of the tour um and you know i'm going home and uh, and Colin was going, oh no, no, I, you know, I think we, I'm not sure there's enough money, you know, to do all that. I said, well, look, I'm too old. I'm telling you, I'm, you know, I'm going to go back to England, and we did change it. And thank God, things started to Actually, look up. Actually, I'm really, really glad. <laughs> I was totally wrong with it discussion we had about road managers no, there was and traveling. I was, oh, yeah, okay. yeah. but um, but this chap, he. Um, the, the particular person we're talking about, who shall be nameless, was a little bit of a nightmare. I, I yeah. don't. know. He went on a parallel tour to us. What he was looking for was to spend the least money and to try and get a little bit of business going on the merchandise for himself. Oh, so, yeah, we, we stop yeah, there, really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> we'll start to get into we'll start to get into legal territory. Oh, yeah, we don't I need to do that. that. I know. <laughs> Colin never well, minds that, but I, I'm uh, always. Very, uh, I have sleep this nights about it constantly. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny though. You bring up the fact that yeah, that you guys got back together in in, in 1999. You know, we I interviewed. 
the two of you in uh, 2011, actually. I was working at a, a paper here in Phoenix, and, and I spoke with the two of you. And at that time, um, Colin, you had said there were a period. There was a period of about 25 years from 75 to two. Th- uh, no, Rod, sorry, you said this. From 75 to 2000, when the two of you weren't working together, you were doing other things. But yeah. in in about 2000, you know, you started working together, and it's funny to me that the initial run of the zombies is so much shorter than this sort of rebirth of the zombies, which at this point now it's been. It's been decades, you know, of like fruitful collaboration and many records and all of this stuff. Kind yeah. of an unlikely, uh, an unlikely second act, if you will. Well, it seems to. Um, one of the things is we've got um, we've got a great management team uh, in the last ten yeah. years, and and since that time in America, even though we were enjoying ourselves a lot before then, um, the the career path and the progression and and the size of the audiences, I have to say as well, have gone like that. Um, mm. you know, so that's, that, that's fashion to some degree, you know, uh, um, our progress. Um, and, and that's been great actually. And it's been, it's been a very unexpected experience in a way, isn't it? It really has. Uh, initially, and we might've said this to you before that, uh, I was doing a solo tour and I had six dates left and I didn't have a keyboard player and I phoned Rod on the off chance. I didn't think he would want to do it, but, uh, and actually he didn't want to do it. I was right. <laughs> <laughs> but he helped out a mate and he did the six gigs, but he said, I only, I just want to do the six gigs, but here we are 20 something years later. Um, and we're still going. It's a very unlikely story, I think. I, I think we're probably one of the only 60s bands that are still performing as intensely as we are. One of the few 60s bands. And again, it's excited about the new creatives. Yeah, and yeah. that are writing new material and, and making new records. There are there are others, you know, I think of uh, The Who and The Stones, and I'm sure that there are some others as well, but they're, they're not that many. I should also say UK-based bands, yes. Putting your music up online is not always the easiest thing in the world to figure out, but DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and, as an artist, you keep 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music into Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, all the major streaming services. You can use it to edit your lyrics and your song credits. So important in the internet age to let people know the kind of people you're collaborating with. And uh, DistroKid makes that easy. You can also see all your stats from the streamers and, of course, add a credit card to purchase album extras. The DistroKid app is available now on iOS and Android. Go to the app or Play Store to download it. I was uh, thinking about you guys discussing being together in the studio for this new project, getting the group in the same place. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, the song Tell Her No, which is one of my all-time favorite recordings and there is something about the atmosphere of that song that is just so palpable and 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 florid and i wondered if you could tell me if you remember 
I mean, in the early days, would it have been recorded the same way? Everybody in a room oh, kind yeah. of vibing off each other? Very, very fast. In fact, that was, that was the reason why on one of those choruses. It's, I know. Yeah. Uh, um, I, I'll just explain that on one of the choruses, I slur the lyric. It, it doesn't actually make any sense. Because <laughs> our, our producer, going starting back at the beginning we were touring a lot and and these sessions would always go into the night we would have to we just have to take time when we could get into the studio and this particular one was we were recording quite late at night i think the guys had recorded five backing tracks during yeah, the we evening. put the backing tracks on yes down first yeah and like i'd fallen asleep in the control room i just remember on this very unlike very unusual yes. for that to happen i just remember on this particular song i'd fallen asleep they woke me up and I went out there and probably because I was a bit sleepy I did slur through the second chorus and I got the words in other words yes and I came back into the producer you know and I was on a separate track so I said well look can I just put that right punch in and just put, and he said don't worry about that that's fine fine next track <laughs> and we moved on and I've always remembered that and in a way maybe he was right because it was a huge hit it went to number six in the, yeah. in the US charts and that's just what I remember about it this that I was woken from my sleep and and sort of messed up the lyric a bit but the People whole try to transcribe that you know, know. they never know what you're saying you know, know. the lyrics <laughs> but that whole session I think we recorded four or five songs in in the evening and we and we probably could, in about four four or five hours yes yeah. we used to record incredibly quickly um you know we would rehearse extensively before the studio and uh, we knew roughly what we were going to do and we just went in and did it but i think that's the way recording was in those days and you didn't have the choices in the studio that you've got now in some ways all these choices can make your life easier and in some ways it makes it more complicated because you can you can discuss the the the, the, the smallest minutiae of everything right uh, down a thousand different ways but that's why we wanted in a way we wanted to get back to the process in this album of all being together and capturing something which in its essence was a little bit of magic there complete and yeah. and, and it makes it so much more of an energetic process you know people are playing together they come in to listen to it and they get excited about what they hear and and in fact even more so together because uh, we've got more tracks now and everything but more so together than than the experience that Cole's just described with Teller no we didn't don't even have to put the backing track down first without uh, a lead vocal we've got you know we can get rid of uh Colin's guide vocal but very often we don't because it, sure. it's got that if we get the right take everyone hits it together and everyone feels that together and then you've got it for posterity it's there you know is it usually pretty apparent? Do you feel that when it's right? Like, yep, that was it. Is it we, usually we, pretty? We usually feel that we've got a really good take. We do yeah. that. You can feel it. Um, but because you're, you know, you always want to go on, and then, and and then it's when you take a little break and you come back and review it um, a few hours later. Um, and it, that was often the case. We would we would start recording usually about midday, wouldn't we? Yeah. Um, uh, at my place. Um, and we'd set up, get the sounds, you know, and and everything. Um, most people's sounds were, were basically there because my studio's only used for us. It's not used for other bands or anything. So all the mics in position, um, the Hammond mics are, the, are there, you know, if I'm using Hammond. Um, 
and uh then really um typically about sort of four o'clock maybe or four thirty or something um we'd we'd start trying takes and it would normally take two or three tracks uh tracks that uh takes that we we knew we were easing into it and then there might be a series of maybe four or five takes where we we've basically got it and you're just aiming for something where it really feels like it's coming off and and there are normally maybe two, two or three or four takes by um I, i'm just making up this these times but you know by sure. about eight o'clock you, you you've, you've probably got three or four takes that you think are basically there then you yeah. go away and and then you listen back to them and everyone says no i think this is the best one i think this is the best one and then you go away and have a couple of hours for dinner or whatever and then you come back and it's it's then much more immediately apparent that people all like the same one and they say yeah but you know that 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 feels so nice when it comes to the end you know that um it, somehow it's caught something and yeah generally that was it i mean occasionally we didn't get it in the first day and we come back and they'd stay over at my place and we come back the next day and, and we get it quickly finished off the next day, you know, and it's it, in a sense, it's so much like recording in the old days in a time scale of things. And, yeah. and that's a real bonus. And then if we feel that it hasn't happened, we can come back to it weeks later and, yeah. and, and, and start the process again on that track, you know, Nobody uh, is uh punch. The clock is not ticking in terms of we've got to get it right now. No, absolutely not. On the topic of tell her no, the Del Shannon covered tell her no, and I wondered if that was a big deal for for you guys. Was that a, a, a? I think I have actually. Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, I've heard it. Yeah. I think that may well have come about because we toured with Del Shannon and the Dick Clark Caravan of Stars. You know, they were. 14 or 16 acts touring all over the country. This was the first tour that we did in the US. We'd been once before, but we just okay. played um, Murray the K's Christmas show. We were just in New York. Mm -hmm. So this was our, our first tour around the country. And Del Shannon was one of the headliners. And uh, we got to know him pretty well. And I'm sure that that led him towards um, Telano. It's a really good performer, Del Shannon, and a, and a lovely guy too. Del Shannon, I I always think of you know, um, you know, I so I'm I was I was born in 1984, so I grew up hearing Tom Petty, you know, Tom Petty, sort of a a a great proponent of of Del Shannon. I mean, he, he cites Del in uh, the song. He's got a song where he cites him, so like I would sort of be like, okay, I got to figure out who this Del Shannon guy is. So I'd go to my uncle who was really into fifties and sixties stuff, and I'd be like, who's Del Shannon? And he'd be like, oh my god, you got to check this out. And so there was that. But I also remember, you know, Tom Petty uh, was pretty evangelistic about the zombies. He really, yeah, he, really was. he was. He was. He would he would talk about hearing those sounds and how spooky and and eerie some of the stuff was and how much he 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 dug that. I, I wonder, you know, what, what kind of experiences did you guys have? Did you ever get a chance to meet him or talk with oh, him about yeah, stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He came to lots of our gigs, especially if we were anywhere near LA. Uh, he would come and he'd always come backstage afterwards. And then on one occasion, he had a radio show that he did in his studio in his house and. Um, 
we went down there and and uh, spent an afternoon with him at his house he's a lovely lovely guy and he really was into the zombies and it's really uplifting for us once when someone that we respect so much uh enthuses about what we've done and what we're doing one of the first times we actually met him um it was at i think it was at jackson hall was it uh, oh yes yes, um, yes and and he was headlining and we were supporting and um we went um we went on stage and then with well, then we went down and on the side of the stage to to catch his set um and what what he used to do then certainly in that concert the band would start playing uh, and, and they'd you know they'd start playing and then tom will come on after them and and join them and um this started happening the band started playing and tom came running on to the side of the stage to join them and he saw us there and instead of going on the stage he turned to us and said oh guys great to see you here he started talking to us about all sorts of things and after about three or four minutes we said tom I think you ought to go and join the band who are still playing these intro things. Yeah. Know? Oh yeah, yeah. And then he went on. To say, no, it's, it's so funny. But yeah, he, I'm sure Mike Campbell's going. Hey guys, cut it short. Let's get let's get the show going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but you know it, he was lovely and um, such a supporter, as Colin said, he, he really was. And he remembered the very first concert that he ever saw was that Dick Clark. Um, tour that we were on and he can describe it minutely and he can describe our set which are completely forgotten um yeah number by number uh and and his reactions to what was going on all the time it, it, you know it's it's burned in his memory actually it, um and he talked to us all about that it was lovely you know i have had the chance i never uh i never got a chance to see tom petty live and i i never got to interview him but listening to that radio show that you guys alluded to he would tell stories about the about the artists he was playing and would tell them with such vivid evocative descriptions that you really did get the sense that um he could almost be transported back you know in time to his his youth and music has a powerful a powerful ability to do that you guys are uh have been playing now for many 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 years does that ever happen for you guys you're on stage and you're playing a song and all of a sudden you can just sort of feel or have a sense of where you were some other time that you were playing that song or you know, do those sort of things happen to to, to either of you Oh, absolutely. I, I, and I completely agree with you that music has got that ability to transport you to an, another time, usually a special time. And because it's not only that when we're playing that we can think of special times in, in our lives, but when we're listening to other people's music, that can happen as well, just as it, you know, it happens to non-musicians. So yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I often, when we're playing, I find, find myself thinking about, when was this written you know when when did we record sure. it and then i realize I've, I've missed the lyrics in the chorus while i'm thinking <laughs> yeah about and i realize that as well. it's really hard look. but rod's got a dagger stare a death stare <laughs> rod's got a death stare that if if you get anything wrong particularly me um i can feel it in my back i don't have to look <laughs> <laughs> but, but but you know for me um it's 
it's in my early years that I have those experiences that you're talking about. I look, it's it's like um, I remember vividly, for instance, uh, and I can see the room. I honestly can see the room in my mind of the day when I was 11 years old that um, Jim Rodford, my my cousin, who was later found a member of Argent with me and for 50 years, not not for 50 years, what am I talking about? But um, for their biggest selling records was playing on with the Kinks. Um, with come dancing and all, around all that time. Um, and he, I, I was always in love with music, but I didn't really like the pop music of the time. This was 1956. Um, and then I went down to see him and I was always a bit in awe of him because he was in it already in a skiffle group. I mean, this was in 1956, you know, and he was playing gigs. Fantastic. Um, and he was uh, four years older than me. I was 11. And he said, um, I said, what's that you're playing? And he was playing some Bill Haley. And and he said, oh, this is great. It's, it's rock and roll, thing, you know. And I was listening to it a bit and I thought, yeah, it's OK. It's OK. But I'm not really that turned on. And then he said, well, have a listen to this. I've just I've just bought it. And he put on Hound Dog with Elvis and I can I can see myself I can see him doing it now in my mind and I can see myself in that room talking to Jim and being blown away completely and it changed my life it absolutely changed my life and, and you know so that two and a half minutes has, has got the ability to take me right back there and then on some of our early gigs um i've got pictures in my mind of us um playing in some of those halls and and having to play where after the beatles in 1962 in the uk uh was were causing a cataclysmic explosion you know which had an enormous effect on every band every musician that was together at that time and you go to a gig and i can see in in, in my mind us playing some of the hits of the day because we were just basically covers weren't they mm -hmm. when a little bit later um and then we would play twist and shout and i can see us playing twist and shout and i can say as i can see us then being having because of the crowd to play it again and then having to play it a third time you know <laughs> and, and those yeah. memories are enormous in my mind and the, like the first time i heard the beatles record that really turned me on love me do I, I loved, but it wasn't. It didn't really turn me on like the second one they put out over there, which was "Please Please Me," um, mm -hmm. and and they they stand hugely in my mind. And I I remember after hearing "Please Please Me," um, going to bed and and leaving Radio Luxembourg on, which was a, like a pirate station for us because it came from Luxembourg, um, and the BBC never used to play records really, certainly not rock and roll records. Mm -hmm. um, and, and and listening all night under the covers to it with a tiny little transistor radio to hear it again you know uh, yeah. it was that powerful you know yeah yeah when aquarium drunkard last caught up with the two of you it was a few years ago i think 2019 and you were getting ready to go out on tour with al jardine and brian wilson um how did yep. those how did how did those shows go you're talking about the beatles and obviously the sort of like the dawn of the psychedelic era, the dawn of the the uh, you know of of rock and roll as a cultural force. The Beatles are a part of that, and 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 of course, what they did to expand the parameters of rock music is so vast. But 
when I think about you know the zombies in relation to the Beatles, the zombies in relation to whoever else, the Doors or Love or any of these groups, it's the Beach Boys that I really do feel like there's maybe the most sort of um, intimate kinship in terms of this. I guess you know you. Sometimes people call it sunshine pop or things like that. I don't really go in for that designation so much because there's a lot of, you know, darkness in the zombies and the Beach Boys for that matter. But what did the Beach Boys mean to you? And were they a band that sort of similar to the way they functioned with the Beatles forced you to feel like you had to step up what you were doing in terms of, you know, in terms of concept and quality? I I don't remember us ever thinking in those sort of terms, but they obviously influenced us. I, I, I think that um, possibly the Beatles and the Beach Boys were the biggest influences in, in, in popular music. But I mean, the thing about the zombies, what I would say is that, that we took our influences from such a wide spectrum of music, from classical music and modern jazz, rhythm and blues, the blues, and from rock and roll. And I think that's where the influences came from. And to a large extent, that was a, a big advantage for us because it 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 made us different. But it also has a disadvantage because people in the media, they like to categorise music. And they've, I think they always found it difficult with the zombies to categorise us. And that can be quite a, a disadvantage. But... um. Definitely, I mean, we was really, really aware of, of the Beatles and the Beach was probably more than any other bands of the time. And on with regard to that particular tour, which was wonderful fun, um, Brian Wilson has got a great band and we, we used to listen to them every night. Um, and Rod and I were invited to play uh, God Only Knows um, mm-hmm. with the band, which which is a huge compliment. And not without its own <laughs> stresses and strains when you think that you're going on stage and performing one of the most beautiful songs ever written, standing next to Brian Wilson, who wrote the song. And um, it, it's something, certainly talking about things that we'll never forget. I will never forget singing that song, standing next to Brian Wilson. Yeah. I, I, the first time I did it was at the Greek theatre, so they were in Los Angeles. There were seven and a half thousand people there. So there's nowhere to hide. You, yeah. can, you can either give it a, a good uh, interpretation or you can't. And um, it went down incredibly well. And I was really thrilled to be asked to do that. There was one uh, There was one huge influence for, uh, from the Beach Boys that I, I can think of. and Well, Brian R- Wilson, really. Um, but particularly Brian Wilson, um, and that is when we did Odyssey and Oracle, um, I hadn't heard um, Sergeant Pepper because that they finished uh, doing Sergeant Pepper. They were the band just before um, the Beatles, uh, the band just before we walked into the studio. We were the next band in there. But um, obviously Pet Sounds have been out, and there are a couple of, a couple of things that I feel in a sense – I touched base with Brian Wilson about in my writing. And one of those things was that even from the earliest days, like um, she's not there. When I wrote, she is not there. The first thing I actually wrote was the bass riff. Boom, 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 boom. And, and, mm-hmm. and, and I was always really turned on to the idea of melodic b- bass parts rather than just the roots of the chords. Um, and I think the, the Beach Boys, the Beach Boys, had that about them. When Brian did Pet Sounds, 
he he sort of um, grew in in that area, and it made me really inspired. Thinking when I heard Pet Sounds, we all loved Pet Sounds when we heard it. We just thought it was great, the most lovely piece of music, and we were knocked out with it. Um, and it made me want to, when I was writing stuff for Odyssey and Oracle, made me want to expand that part of me, which I already felt, the, the melodic bass lines underneath, and bass lines that didn't always, they weren't always the root of the chord that was being played above them as well. Right. Uh, and Brian did that too. Um, and, and that made me think, wow, that, I love that about this album. And it made me want to develop that in what i was then going to write um so in that sense um i, I was sort of copying the beach boys but i wasn't co copying any particular part of them it was it was the general feeling of the way he was developing music and making it more in a sense that was um uh, quite a, a something from classical music because it was saying we're not just playing the roots of the chords anymore we're, this is a part you know this is right. a part that 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 makes sense and and clashes with top harmonies, but in a in a very lovely way, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So that's one thing I can think of. So I think that the Pet Sounds did have an influence, certainly on my writing in 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 uh, Odyssey and Oracle, but in that very generalised way. But it was an important way of feeling that we could expand the canvas in Odyssey and Oracle, which I did. I think we did for ourselves. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. Odyssey and Oracle, of course, has this fascinating uh, history, and and the record uh, became a hit in the U.S. Uh, basically, when you guys had put the project on the back burner, there wasn't uh, there wasn't a lot happening in Zombies Land, which, of course, one of the great rock and roll stories of the last decade or so to come out was the fact that there were a number of fake zombies that uh, that began to uh, tour the United States. I think about how different the world was back then when if I, if I turned up at a, uh, a gig to see Spoon, the band Spoon or something, and it was just a bunch of guys who weren't Spoon, I would know that. <laughs> Yeah. People yeah. people back then maybe not so much. Um when did you did you guys catch wind of that while it was happening? Did you know that there were counterfeiters out there spreading we, the word? We did actually. And I I'll tell you a a side story to that. Chris White, the original bass player in the Zombies was in New York and he was in the offices of Rolling Stone and um they said, "Listen, we've got the phone number." of the manager of one of these bands that's um impersonating the zombies we want chris white to ring up the manager of this band and he'll think you're a journalist from rolling stone and we'll see what he's got to say so he told chris when they started the conversation that his band was honoring the life of the lead singer from the zombies who'd been tragically killed in a car crash <laughs> and this you know there was a featured article in rolling stone at the time about this so this was his excuse so you know my my epitaph was written a little early <laughs> uh, i'm glad to say yeah, that, me too me too story, that was the story he was telling anyway i don't know about the other two bands i think they were just trying to make some money uh, i don't think they were trying to honor anyone's anyone's life or death but it was just <laughs> an amusing side story that came with it and, and in some ways i don't know 
we weren't actively using the name the zombies and i didn't have any real negative feelings about other people using it it just seemed so distant and you know as you said the world was a different place then it, it was three or four thousand miles away from home we weren't active as zombies it it just all seemed very distant to me at the time so i i didn't really have strong feelings about it there was a later zombies in the 80s they were actually english guys who were over in the states and they were pretending to be the zombies and i did try and stop them in my own way and i think other people did as well i i um contacted their manager who was in england uh contacted the musicians union and a few other things and suddenly they stopped and i thought well i i don't know what i did but i must have done something or one of us has done something but what had happened was they weren't very good i have to say in the first place and one of the disgruntled fans who'd been watching them had gone into the dressing room and had pulled a gun on them and said you are not the zombies you will stop playing as the zombies and they did now listen i'm not recommending this as a way of settling business affairs it really i'm not in any way saying that but it was very effective and it was nothing to do with us it was a fan explained to them that it's probably best if they didn't play anymore i don't i don't know how the the ones in the 60s i think they just ran out of steam didn't they i don't know oh i don't know i, don't know I, I didn't happened. care really no i, I didn't really <laughs> long long way away and we'd all moved on to new projects it was difficult right. we've always put our energy into what we're doing today and totally. and, and the future yeah. it's very difficult to get yourself wound up about something that really is related to what we've done in the past it felt like a wonderful piece of bonus luck that that we were already on a different path and suddenly a um time of the season was a number one record uh, all over the world actually except for in the uk where it's never been a hit it's very weird <laughs> time of the season has never been a hit it's been out five times I yeah. Believe. yeah yeah but but everyone knows it over there um unbelievably it, all the yeah. young people know it well, that, it's been in many commercials and yeah. it's been in many films so they know it and i think most people in the uk think it was a hit they, they they're all familiar with it but it, it actually wasn't yeah yeah. Well, one of those fake zombies had two members of ZZ Top in the group, yes. right? So du I think it was Dusty Hill and Frank Beard. Um, or maybe, yes. I, maybe, maybe I'm mixing them up, but I'm curious in all of your back and forths and your tours and, and travels over the years, did you ever run into the ZZ Top guys and, and get to ask them about it? No, 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 we never did. I mean, I, I really like their music, you know, the, the big hits that I know. Yeah. Um, but uh, no, we've never met them. I think maybe should we charge them some kind of percentage for the I think so. Um, or <laughs> I'm or or the two of you can go out on tour, get a, get a, one more guy in the group, and and tour as ZZ Top. It might be. I don't it think might I can be, throw a beard that sure was long that. enough. Long enough, actually. <laughs> not sure I want to see that. you guys do the thing where you spin your guitars like they do. Right, do you know? Okay. What I <laughs> yeah. yeah, but that's well, us trying to get control over them. Uh, go, yeah. go ahead, yeah. <laughs> Well, I appreciate you guys taking the time so much. It's been an absolute blast. Before we before we conclude, though, I wanted to ask about one more song. I was cruising through the discography and, and checking out various stuff. And, you know, I hadn't spent a lot of time with the record that you put out in 1992, New World. Right. Okay. But, well, but yeah. there's a... Oh, no. I, go ahead. No, no, no. You, you Please go ahead. Yeah. 
I was gonna say, but but you cover uh, a prefab sprout song on that uh, yeah. on that record. Uh, when love breaks down, which is an incredible song, one of my favorites of that group's, and I just wondered uh, how that one came across your radar, or what influenced the decision to do that one. Well, I'm trying to remember, but first of all, it was an album that Rod really wasn't involved with. I, I think you might have played on a couple of tracks. I was asked to be involved with it, yeah. but I just didn't want to. I said, you know, the zombies is, you know, that was then, and you know, I'm sure. back to that. You know, it really came about. Chris White, the original bass player, was concerned about the later impersonators oh, of the zombies. Yeah. Uh, the ones who, um, you know, decided to retire when they were threatened with a gun. And were so bad. Yes. And, that, and, they, were, and they were very bad. And Chris was really concerned about this. And his his legal advice was that if we weren't using the name, we didn't have a real hold on the name. These people could can go out and um, act as the zombies. And so he started to get this project together. And in many ways, it was driven by the fact of us reactivating the name The Zombies. Now, whether it was the right thing to do or not, I'm not absolutely sure, but I I, I was involved in it. And you were never sure that you wanted to be, though, were well, you? Really, it happened really quickly. Yeah. Uh, we, we went and met someone who, um, a manager and uh, Chris said just come along and listen to what he's got to say yeah. but <clears throat> I learned a lesson then in in being there the manager thinks that I'm I'm involved in this project but I wasn't I was just there to listen sure. to what he had to say and that developed into well uh why not just have a day in the studio and then he really liked what came out of the studio and suddenly i felt myself involved in this project and with regard to that particular song i'm not sure how, i mean i've always liked that song i can't remember the sort of the process of how we arrived at, at playing that song but it, it is a great you're quite right what it's is a, the song uh when love breaks down by prefab i used to love prefab yeah i must i must listen to that again yeah uh, and um I've always liked that song, but I don't. I can't remember the process of how we arrived at it because it it is quite an unlikely thing for us to do. But I'm glad we did it, and I, I thought we did quite. We had quite a good interpretation of it as well. I think, if I'm allowed to say that, I uh, think you're allowed to say. I certainly enjoyed it, and I've enjoyed spending time with this new record, and very much enjoyed getting the chance to speak with you guys about your history and and all of these incredible songs and thank you guys for being out there for doing your thing and for keeping the real zombies going all of, <laughs> all of these all of these years i i, I and I, I appreciate it as we always say we're an emerging rock group so thank yes. you yes. <laughs> happy to shine a light on this up-and-coming young yes. crew of of uh psychedelic rock musicians um guys thank you so much for taking the time to be with us here on transmissions and be safe on your journeys uh make sure that there's no more breakdowns in the desert as much as you can help it okay, okay. great talking to you all the very best be well guys thank you bye Big thanks to Rod and Colin for joining us here on Transmissions, and thank you so much for tuning in, listening, and being part of the show. I'm Jason P. Woodbury. I write, host, and produce the program. Transmissions is edited by Andrew Horton. Our music comes from Frank Mastin, drawn from his incredible discography of gorgeous library music. 
Find more by visiting maston.bandcamp.com. Our executive producer is Justin Gage, Aquarium Drunkard's founder. Don't miss his radio show, The Aquarium Drunkard Show, on Sirius XMU Channel 35 at 7 p.m. Pacific Time. Transmissions is part of the TalkHouse Podcast Network. Visit the TalkHouse for more interviews, fascinating reads, and podcasts. Next week on Transmissions, well, another artist I talked to very early in my music writing career, Sharon Van Etten. It was an incredible chance to catch up with her. So return next week, wherever you get podcasts to listen in. Be well in the meantime. This transmission is concluded. Transmission.